We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media. And it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos, and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. When we were all locked down and isolating, conspiracy theorists went on the march. The emergence of anti-vaccine scaremongering coupled with virulent anti-Semitism was disconcerting for all of us. But it was even more nuts for Naomi Klein, journalist and author of The Shock Doctrine, who found herself constantly getting mixed up with Naomi Wolf, another author and academic. Klein found herself being drawn into a strange mirror world as she tracked her doppelganger's journey from feminist academic and liberal darling to gun-toting anti-vaxxer palling around with Steve Bannon. What was it about COVID that strengthened the far right? And how do all of us create doppelgangers of ourselves online? Stay tuned to find out as I talk to Naomi Klein for Downstream. So when did it stop being funny that you were being confused for Naomi Wolf? I mean, I still find it funny sometimes, to be <laughs> honest, um, especially because it still happens. In fact, I was doing a TV interview in the States um, last week and the host had to do a retake. No. Like, and he didn't realize that he'd done it. And I was like, you have to stop now and redo that because you just called me Naomi Wolf. Oh my God. He should have kept it in. <laughs> I'm not going to name him, but he knows who he is. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, to be honest, it's always been a little cringy, Uh, you know, starting from the very beginning, you know, I start the book with this story about being at Occupy Wall Street and and being in a public loo and hearing a couple of... um, you know, demonstrators talking about an article that Naomi Klein had written and, oh my God, she doesn't understand our demands or our movement. And obviously that was lower stakes. I mean, that was, they were talking about an article by Naomi Wolf. Did you call from inside the store like, uh, sorry, (laughs) you've got the wrong. No, I mean, I froze, you you know, like flashbacks to high school, mean girls, like, what have I written, you know? And then as I listened more, I, I recognized the article that they were discussing and knew that I had not written it. And so I just very casually came out and made eye contact in the mirror and said, I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. Um, <laughs> words I have had to say many times since then. So that was 2011. But even then, I mean, it was funny, and I and I would entertain my friends, you know, over drinks with these sorts of stories. <laughs> uh, they couldn't get enough of it. Um, but I mean, I would also get, you know, I, I, I I'm going to be talking to Andrew Marr um, later today, and I'm going to remind him that the last time he interviewed me, it was on the BBC, and he referred to me as Naomi Campbell. So. Naomi Campbell? <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry to disappoint you. You broke so like- <laughs> many barriers in fashion. <laughs> exactly. You know. 
<laughs> that one is harder because then I feel like, you know, the audience is really quite disappointed when I How do you out, feel you about know? your feud with Tara Banks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole blood diamond thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really, I mean, in hindsight, except for most blood diamonds, was really poor form from the author of No Logo. So there's something about the name Naomi that people do have trouble with. But no, so I mean, even, even back to Occupy Wall Street, it was, it was, the stakes were lower, but it, it still bothered me just for sort of niche reasons because that particular context, she had written an article where, dis, you know, if you, I'm sure you remember from Occupy Wall Street, there was a very, um, you know, there was a decision not to have a list of demands that that mm. that politicians could just meet and everyone would go home. It was much, you know, it had a deeper critique of the system than that. And what Wolf had done in the article that they were upset about was claim that she had divined the demands of Occupy Wall Street, <laughs> she and just, she came up with a list based on yes, based on ra a random assortment of in, of of online communications that she'd had. So even though that was like pretty low stakes, for me, it was quite a cringe because I, I do try to be pretty careful um, not to do that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I it was one of the things that really struck me about the book, which is that in one of the early chapters, when you're talking about being mixed up for Naomi Wolf, you sort of really strive to talk about the rigor of your journalistic work and the depth of the research and the scrutiny that you apply to your own writing. Do you feel a bit defensive about this mix-up and that you feel that you've got to put all this distance between the two of you? Well, I mean, if anything, I think I've put less distance between the two of us. Like I've, I've probably cemented the, the connection forever. I'll never be able to escape it. But I do think that it is important to, to, to make a distinction between what investigative journalism does, what rigorous research is, how we make sure that we don't go to press with speculation. Because Honestly, I think a lot of people are confused about that. And part of what she does, and you know, she's just a, a case study um, of a of a broader movement, which is this conspiracy culture. And I don't call it conspiracy theory because there really isn't a coherent theory. It's just jumping around more of like a, she's more of a conspiracy influencer than she is a theorist. I don't think it's really fair to theory to call it. <laughs> Or a theorist, because all, the theories are constantly contradicting each other, right? One minute, COVID is a bioweapon um, cooked up by the Chinese to depopulate the West. And the next minute, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Don't even put on a mask. So like you, you presumably would have to choose, yeah, between the two. Um, so, but there is something about the fact that there are people who consume these things interchangeably, right? And I, you know, describe this as a doppelganger of journalism because it uses a bunch of the conventions, um, breaking scoop, you know, like I've got the papers, um, smoking gun, all of this. But because it's within the attention economy and the need to be first out of the gate to get the clicks, to get the clout, um, you leap over all the guardrails. So yeah, I spent some time in the book just sort of explaining what we try to do in I, whether it's investigative journalism or academic research to check our facts based on the idea that facts still matter. Um, but it isn't so much about me putting distance between her because it's a doppelganger book. <laughs> and doppelganger books are, you know, you have to see yourself in the mirror of your doppelganger or you have failed. Do you ever wonder who the mad woman in the attic is? Like, oh, is it her or is it me? Absolutely, yes. I, there's been uncomfortable winces of recognition throughout <laughs> this journey. I mean, the moment when 
Naomi Wolf is on BBC Radio and her book Outrages just just gets a tractor driven through it. So it turns out that she made this uh, reading error and it meant that what was supposed to be a spectacular revelation was was exactly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt such a pang of empathy mm-hmm. when that happened Did because you? I thought, oh my God, that could be me one day. And it was this horrible fear of seeing something that you've always had nightmares about happening to someone else. And then you want to put distance between them and you by going, ha, 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 how how could you be so stupid? How could this happen to you? I mean, did you ever have those moments of like empathetic recognition with her where you go, oh God, that could have been me? I mean, it's every writer's worst nightmare. Um, And I... I mean, it's a little hard for me to just feel straight empathy because a lot of people thought it was me who made that mistake. <laughs> so like, <laughs> you know, I only found out that it happened because my feed was filled with people going, thoughts and prayers to Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh no, what has she done now? And I'm always having to kind of reverse engineer whatever the scandal is based on people either literally thinking it's me or sort of sending mock sympathy <laughs> to me. Um, but you know, I, I like as you know in the book, I have a little maybe a little a, a sort of half jokey equation about not only her but um, many figures who ha- who you know we've many of us have had conversations like whatever happened to that person? Mm-hmm. I thought I thought I knew who they were. I thought I, I could trust them, and now suddenly they're palling around with Tucker Carlson um, or Elon Musk or you know whatever happened to fill in the blanks. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I have this equation that might not be perfect for every person, um, but it is narcissism, uh, bracket grandiosity, times social media addiction, which you and I have discussed. <laughs> um, I don't want that uh, mirror being held up to me. I don't want to see no, the face uh, that's in there. Plus midlife crisis, which you don't have to worry about for a while. I got 10 years. <laughs> Divided by public shaming equals right wing meltdown. So. I think that that you know I th- I think that she should have been held accountable for those for those um major errors and outrages and in general book publishing um you know doesn't fact check as much as they should I always you know I'm lucky to um be one of the few writers who can afford to pay my own fact checkers, but I pay my fact checkers out of out of my book advance. You know, I pay my research assistants, and then a whole separate process of going back over every single fact, because because my first book made me a target. Right, I did, I couldn't afford it for my first book, um, but after that book, I you know I've 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 had the fear of God. To not be in that situation where where a reporter discovers that you have a huge error in the middle of your book and the whole thing gets discredited. Um, so, but so I think accountability is good. But what happened after that was just a disgusting pile on online where people were. I mean, I think as you say, like putting that distance um, between them and her. Uh, because everybody, it's everybody's worst nightmare, and just having a lot of fun shaming her and turning her into a spectacle. And I think that that probably nudged her a little bit in the direction. Of, I mean, and I think she should be held accountable for these terrible decisions she's made to align herself with some of the most dangerous men on the planet. Um, but 
you know, I don't think it's great that people, you know, are so cruel to each other online. That's my radical position today. <laughs> I mean, you, you're talking about the word accountability. In some ways, it's easier to talk about accountability for Naomi Wolf because she's this individual and we've seen yeah. this descent into fact-free conspiracism. Yeah. But the responsibility for cruelty online is a lot more diffuse. Yeah. And we can more easily dodge it. Yeah. And, you know, the reason why I thought this might be a fun idea for a book, <laughs> um, and it got less fun, you know, there's, I have a, a, a um, quote early on in the book from Philip Roth about, from his really quite wonderful doppelganger novel, uh, Operation Shylock, which is about Philip Roth, a character called Philip Roth, who has a doppelganger called Philip Roth, creating all kinds of mayhem. And he says, it's 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 too ridiculous to take seriously and too serious to be ridiculous. And when I started this, it was more on the ridiculous side mm -hmm. of the ledger. And then as things went on and she got closer and closer to Steve Bannon, um, started uh, engaging in election denial, started taking pictures of herself with her guns, started taking posting pictures of her new, um, well, not so new anymore, but her husband is a private detective slash mercenary who likes to um, post pictures of himself doing target practice and so on. So it's gotten more serious than ridiculous just because it is part of a broader fascist surge globally. Um, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so you, you talked about that that seriousness and that kind of quite scary descent into fascism. Um how can you stop people laughing? You know, when does when does the comedy stop and the, the yeah. sense of urgency kick in? Um, well, I, you know, this is why I think that that sentence is really resonant because I, I feel like people have that same feeling about Trump a lot of the time, or at least they did before where it was just like unclear. And Boris Johnson and Duterte, I mean, these sort of buffoonish figures. Um, Berlusconi, who, I think, was the- Oh, absolutely. The yes. original, yeah. you know. Bolsonaro's the only one who's not at all funny. I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is funny in that he just kept getting COVID. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, that was, it was like Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes. <laughs> like it wasn't comedy of his making. It was kind yeah. of yeah, exactly. God's comedy. Exactly. Um, but he didn't seem to be playing, playing up the character. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, at what point do we stop? I think we're still trying to figure out how to how to respond to the weight of our historical moment and frankly failing um, uh, most days, right? I think there, there are flashes, I don't know about you, where I feel like, okay, we're, we're, we're getting close to touching just how um, consequential the decisions we're making are in, in, these, in, these, in these years of you know, climate breakdown, surging fascism, border violence, just oligarchic concentration of, I mean, wealth, it's, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot. And, and so, I mean, this, I think the through line of the book and the reason why I thought that doppelganger doppel doubles, like the, the book, the through line of the book is less her than it is the way in which we create doubles of ourselves. Um, and it, uh, it, our groups, you know, respond to each other in this, in these sorts of mirror world ways. We we react to one another rather than behave based on legible principles a lot of the time. 
And my analysis is that all of it is about not looking at what we need to look at, right? That that you know the third section of the book is is called the Shadowlands, and I think that you know whether we're staring into our phones, looking at our digital doubles, you know the way we 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 create these little doppelgangers of ourselves to represent us, um, which is you know wh- why I thought it was interesting that I lost control over my digital <laughs> identity during COVID, and I thought, well, this is an interesting way in. Um, you know, or the way we sort of project all that we want to distance ourselves from onto the other, as if we are the ones who are really, um, you know, married to truth and facts and, you know, facing the weight of our moment when we all know that we are distracting ourselves endlessly and looking away endlessly. And, you know, it's, you know, there's more than one way to look away. Uh, um, and conspiracy culture plays that role for a lot of people. It's a, you know, just a, a decision to divorce from, any recognizable shared reality and just make up your own facts, make up your own reality. But, you know. I mean, one of the things uh, that I was reflecting on as I was reading this book was uh, my own career in the media. Because when I started out, I was always paired up against really old white guys. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to have a sort of brand identity as young, female, brown, left-wing, disruptor. Oh my God, what is she going to do next? Mm -hmm. And then over time, I started getting partnered with young, right-wing women of color. Oh, interesting. So it was like they were putting me up against my own Wario. And I then suddenly felt this sense of um, nausea where I was like, have I contributed to creating this category of right-wing talking head Mm. where they want the they want the, white, the right wing <laughs> to play against type. Mm-hmm. And I've participated in the commodification of identity to the extent that it becomes very powerful for the right. I mean, I felt mm-hmm. quite kind of, you know, disoriented by it. And I guess I was wondering when you're looking at your conspiratorial doppelganger, do you ever feel this little sense of responsibility going, did I make this in some way? Like, mm. it's not just a, a mirror. Did I create this mirror somehow? Mm. Um, you know, I think it is always worth interrogating, right? Uh, and 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 looking at, you know, and sometimes those winces can be really productive because you, it 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 pushes you to think about what is it that you're doing and what it what you know what what parts of it are most important to you, right? Um, and if the if if it's an easy to doppelgang part part of you, then you might want to lean into some of the other parts because because you aren't just playing an identity game. Mm. You, you know you you it, I, you know that's not the way I perceive your role in 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 the media. Um, you, you're making arguments and you're representing a set of values and beliefs and. Um, they can doppelgang your identity, but uh, you know I think it's a lot harder to do that when you're, um, you know, when you're making arguments that are genuine challenge to power. And so I did interrogate. You know, it, it wasn't only Wolf who was doing a kind of fact, like you know, I describe in the book as a kind of fact-free remix of the, of the shock doctrine specifically. And 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 here I'm not saying it was deliberate. But there was a way in which I mean, I still every like every every tour stop, every every um, time I log on, I, I I hear people who are furious that I wrote the shock doctrine and have failed to recognize that the vaccines are the biggest shock doctrine in world history. 
not for the reasons that I believe they are, <laughs> because there should never have been patents and this was mm. an opportunity for massive illegitimate enrichment and we should have, you know, they should have never been patented in the first place, but because um, they were violating bodily sovereignty and, you know, they believe that there, there has been a genocide that has been covered up by the quote unquote elites. Um, and There's some graffiti near my yeah. house where it says anti-vaxxer and then next to it, I love my sperm and then like a, a big picture of sperm. And I was like, yeah, so that's the shock doctrine I miss, missed. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're really low on, <laughs> low on sperm. You but, really, but no, but I think I did feel that when I, you know, when I started to hear people using the shock doctrine to sell, um, you know, what I considered to be, you know, largely made up theories about how public health measures were, uh, an attempt by the CCP and Fauci and Gates to um, bring in Chinese social credit or whatever it was. I mean, the Great Reset, all mm. of that. Um, like to be clear, I think there have been real examples of what I would call the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism under cover of COVID. I'm very concerned about them. The NHS has been attacked, you know, under cover of COVID. I live in Canada. The same thing has happened to our public health care system. A lot of the attacks on the schools about COVID measures are really just attacks on public schools by the same people who always attack public schools under cover of emergency. But there is this kind of doppelganger of the shock doctrine uh, out there. And I, I, and I think for a while it made me less willing to talk about that because I couldn't figure out how to talk about the shock doctrine, how to talk about my concerns about Bill Gates, which were not fantastical, but very provable about what he was doing providing you know cover for the drug companies to keep their patents in place and so on because it was just getting all it was a, just a swirl of bill gates tracking you know implants um and you know i, I would was just getting like the algorithms were, were were starting to confuse me with wolf and i was just like it, it it's we're just a mess of naomi is talking <laughs> about bill gates so but i think the worst thing you can do is is let that doppelganger experience silence you. <laughs> you know, I, I regret not talking more about the the, the patents um, dur during during this period. Um, not I, I regret any way in which the left has ceded territory to the fake populist right um, by not going after corporate power and not making the connections with the logics of capitalism. Um, because that's just such a gift uh, to the Steve Bannons of the world who just suck it all up, or Georgia Malone, and and then twist it and turn it into transphobia and xenophobia and you know an incredibly malevolent agenda. I mean, is is there a way to sort of reclaim the integrity of left wing ideas without it being about insisting on your intellectual property rights because the strength of the left has always come from the dissemination of ideas in a very open way the communist yeah. manifesto was meant to be passed hand to hand from worker to worker yeah, yeah. and then you know in some ways shock doctrine being appropriated by a conspiracy theorists is testament to its success and its its meaning and its power as an idea so how do you how do you navigate that as someone who's on the left mm -hmm. I mean I agree I mean I think the left should be taking popular education as seriously as you know it it, it originally was with the original pamphleteers and and the idea of doing this kind of popular education in part 
because the alternative was conspiracy theory, right? I mean, I have a section in the book that looks at anti-Semitism as the socialism of fools and, you know, in part, you know, look, looks at the history of, of Marxist thought as in part being a history of a whole bunch of Jews banging their head against the, <laughs> the brick wall of history, uh, saying it's not the Jews that are <laughs> the results of your pain or causing your pain, but it's actually this system. So I don't think, I don't think we should, any of us should embrace our ideas being distorted and turned into like a warped um, mirror of themselves. But is there a way to do that without going, it's mine, like this is my idea? I don't think it's about it. intellectual property. I think it's about having a robust left that is doing system analysis. Um, and, you know, and and I think that when that doesn't happen, conspiracy culture swirls because the center isn't holding, because there's so much suffering, um, and because all of the promises that capitalism has made about the meritocracy, and if you work hard, you're going to succeed and you'll be able to climb this ladder, it's falling apart. And people know that. And our education system doesn't explain what capitalism is. It, it, it says it's all about sunshine and Big Macs and freedom and, you know, getting the rewards that you deserve. And so when the system fails, people are really, really vulnerable to somebody pulling them aside and going, it's actually the Jews, you know, or it's actually the, it's a, it's the CCP or it's this, this meeting once a year, right? And so the need for that robust system analysis is urgent because I think it's the only force that can drain power um, from this surging authoritarianism. Um, you know, if they were just taking the ideas and putting to them to good use, then- You'd be like, fine. Fine. Yes, always. You know, it doesn't <laughs> matter if you get credit or not, you want them to disseminate. The problem is, and this, you know, I listened to hundreds of hours of Steve Bannon to do, to, to write this book, unfortunately. And the most chilling moments were when I was when I would hear him sounding like what the left mm. used to sound like and doesn't really sound like anymore, because there is not as much of a anti corporate left as there used to be, let alone an anti capitalist left. It's much more partisan and reactive. It is part of the appeal of the likes of Steve Bannon and the very reactionary authoritarian right is that they're saying here's how to live and it will make you a better person, a stronger person, a smarter person, a more worthy person. Whereas the left, we've retreated a lot into like, you do what you want to do, except there is no you do what you want to do because if you are perceived in the wrong way, particularly online, people jump down your throat. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Bannon is different than some of the other people who are more like, this is how to live. Like he's he's less of a lifestyle guy. Like he's not Jordan Peterson or- you know. I don't think anyone goes, how do I get the Steve Bannon look? Exactly. <laughs> no, he's more of an organizer. I mean, he is the guy who is organizing, you know, the takeover of your local Republican party, your local school board, you know, get those books banned. Um, mm. You know, he's- very deliberately building a political coalition that he calls MAGA Plus, which is, you know, the plus is women who they mm. haven't been able to really lock down enough to win the last couple of elections. And so in the same way that he peeled away um, some some uh, Democratic voting working class guys who had, were pissed off about having voted for 
you know, Democrats three, four times who promised that they were going to renegotiate trade deals and then um, voted for Trump because he said he was going to do it. And it wasn't the only reason why people voted for Trump, but there, it doesn't need to be that many people who you peel away mm. with these messages. He now sees that opportunity with who he calls the warrior moms. Um, so it's interesting because I definitely think that there there is an appeal around I'm going to help you learn how to live mm. um, that, that certain people are offering on the right. Um, but I think with Bannon, what he's offering is a political program. He's out offering a plan. It's an activist space. His slogan is action, action, action. Um, and he doesn't, he refers to his listeners as the war room posse. And he makes them feel like they're not just listening or, or watching. They are part of his army. When he but gets it's that thing, which is, you know, uh, I want David from accounts to feel yeah. like Ajax, the conqueror. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it is difficult to draw the line between political organizing, LARPing, and, you know, de entertainment. Andrew Tate, there's a Andrew Tate group chat called the war room, which is again yeah. very similar. Trying to say like we're going to build you up and empower you if you just do yeah. these things. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is where the left is at something of a disadvantage because it takes more time and it's more complicated to build the kind of mass power that has any kind of chance of standing up to the sort of consolidated wealth that we're talking about. Whereas Bannon is perfectly happy to just have a plan to get back into the White House. And so there is a plan and it is, you know, take over politics at every level, um, peel off part of your opposition um, by using all of this COVID uh, um, residual anger and pivoting it in the way that we've been talking about. Um, so what is the left plan? Like, I mean, we can diagnose, we can do systems analysis, mm. but that's just going to make people feel helpless for the most part, because then they're going to better understand <laughs> that um, as an individual, there's nothing that they can do. They can only stand up to these systems um, in mass collective action, mm. right? If there is a conspiracy and there's just, you know, five guys who are responsible for all of the suffering in the world, then, you know, like the bumper sticker says, make the Nuremberg code great again. Let's bring <laughs> them up on war crimes trials, right? I mean, that's part of their plan is a sort of a fantasy mm. of justice, right? That's also at the heart of QAnon is like, there's going to be a great storm and all of the bad people are going to get arrested and they're going to be brought up on charges and there will be justice because we will replace them with the the, with the good people. Well, um, the observation yeah. that January 6th was people dressing up and storming the Capitol. It was like, you know, a, a sort of Comic-Con element of it as well. Like you get to live this fantasy for a day, yeah. except it's real. Yeah, and um, you know this is this is the Bannon playbook. Um, you know he wants people to inhabit their their avatars, um, and so many of these figures are very very skilled from the world of entertainment and reality television. Right, so Bannon, you know Bannon's worked in Hollywood. He's worked in video games. Trump, obviously, reality television. Tate as well, mm. former reality show star. Um, you know, the only one who doesn't really have this history is Peterson. Um, you know, Joe Rogan, also former reality Didn't show. Didn't he voice at the Frog? What? Didn't he voice at the Frog? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's, he's the only one who's just a natural at this, I guess. <laughs> um, I always feel as a Canadian, I need to apologize when I'm abroad. Uh, if I had for to start that apologizing export. for every Brit out there, we'd... <laughs> 
We'd be here all day. Yeah. But so, 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 so the left, the left proposition is not just we're out here making a better argument about what is really driving um, mass misery. Um, we also have to connect that analysis with a credible organizing strategy that shatters the sense that there's nothing you can do about these huge systems because it's a hell of a lot easier to take on a cabal uh, just um, than it is to take on a system, right? And that's why, you know, if anything has made me feel a little bit optimistic in recent in recent um, days, it's been the UAW going out on strike, mm. um, the United Auto Workers in, in the States, and the fact that there's a, a great new leader of that union, Sean Fain, who was an insurgent candidate. And um, and he's on the news because he's <laughs> taken on the big three automakers and he's doing real left populism. And he is saying, um, you know, these these companies have you know, recorded record profits and they've given themselves massive wages and our workers haven't been able to keep up with the cost of living increases and we're going to get them. And that that just having somebody out there who has a clear left analysis and a plan mm. about what to do about it. We are going to disrupt your, your uh, you know, your assembly lines. I feel like it makes the Bannons of the world sort of shrivel up and die because they are not die, but, 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 but they, they can only sell the counterfeit if the, the real thing isn't yeah. on offer or even in the public sphere. So when words and action momentarily are are married you know in these in in the in these moments of mass worker action or you know the debt collective or tenant organizing or any of the ways that people are finding collective power you know that's going to do more to drain the power of right wing conspiracy culture than an army of fact checkers and content moderators well, i mean I, I was thinking about one of the advantages that the right has which is they've got this screen-based ecosystem, whether it's YouTube or accounts on Twitter, where they're bringing together a community and making it lonelier all the time. So I was reminded of that bit where um, mm. Anthony says of Cleopatra, she makes hungry where most she satisfies. So it's mm. satisfying this need for social connection, yeah. but because it's not the real thing, you're getting hungrier and hungrier sure. all the time. You know, how does the left draw a balance between contesting these spaces in a legacy media or social media ecology, but also just being in, you know, flesh space, you know, where yeah. we can touch yeah, each other sure. and make eye contact and engage with each other as human beings and not digital avatars? Yeah, I mean, that quote is so interesting because I feel like, you know, back to my first book, No Logo, which I wrote before the explosion of personal branding and 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 and, and some of the things that I revisit here um you know, a lot of what I did in that book was was track the way in which the first mega lifestyle brands like Nike and Apple and Starbucks were co-opting revolutionary rhetoric, um, you know, putting Martin Luther King on Apple ads and, you know, <laughs> yes, this is before your time, but it was, oh it was weird. Um, and, and, and there was, you know, there was all of this unease, like, you know, all of the iconography of the 1960s, the anti-Vietnam War movement was suddenly a Nike ad and, 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 um, and Gandhi was, you know, from the grave shilling for, for, for Apple. And, and on, on the one hand, you can say, oh, nothing means anything anymore. But that wasn't my feeling. My feeling was like, 
like in the 90s where we had been told that nobody liked left ideas, I thought it was really exciting that these mm. companies with all of their market research had found that what people actually wanted was revolution. <laughs> and obviously they weren't going to get it from their running shoes or their laptops. So there would be that constant hunger cycle that you're mm. that you're using much more literary references <laughs> for. Um, but 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 the, so for capitalism, that's great because you'll just have to keep shopping. You know, you'll get like a little a little hit, and then you'll crash again, and you'll have to shop again in order to get that feeling. I hate myself yeah. for the way in which I instinctively scroll through clothing when I feel sad, yeah. and it makes me feel worse. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Yeah. It's just like my classic depression activities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Horrible. <laughs> Well, and it's it's helpful to just be aware that you're doing it because you're sad or you're doing it because um, you're insecure, you know, and to, people shop one of the times when you have the highest spike in, in, in consumption is when people are becoming parents for the first time mm-hmm. um, because they're panicked and they don't have people who will help them figure out how to be parents anymore because if we don't live in communities, we tend to be isolated. And so you just think, if I were to just get this $1,000 bouncy chair, everything would be <laughs> fine, you know? But I remember that from when I, when I, when I, when I just, I mean, never have I been more of a consumer drone than I mean, was than it a fear that days. like bypassed your own critical awareness of the thing you were doing? It was just... Well, it was really useful to me to see that statistic, like that this is the t- time when when cons- consumption is higher than at any point in our lives. And mm. not just because you need a whole bunch of new things. It's because um, it's, it's well beyond what you need. And it's it's just fear. Yeah, it's just fear. Um, <laughs> I know I, it, it keeps it in check a little bit. It doesn't keep it completely in check, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it's still helpful to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you were talking about the the um, symbols of revolution, language of revolution being co-opted yeah, by let's come uh, back to that. Know, 90s capitalism. Yeah. I didn't know that Nike had used Martin Luther King, but the Apple thing- Apple used Martin Luther oh, King. Uh, Nike used a whole bunch of Vietnam War anthems. Oh my yeah. God. Because then the thing that it made me think of was- um, in this very direct way, Nike revealing that it partnered with Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. all that time when he was being blacklisted by the NFL. Because I remember the conversations going on at that time, which for lots of people on the anti-racist left, for lots of black people, was a feeling of like, well, at least someone's standing with us during this time. But yeah. there was also this queasiness of going, but you're doing it to sell your shoes. I mean, mm-hmm. how did you make sense of moments like that? Mm, yeah, I mean, I was teaching a course at the time, so it was helpful. I was teaching a course called The Corporate Self, an undergraduate course. So we were sort of processing all of the Nike ads in real time. I mean, it's interesting because it's not unlike the people's reaction to the Barbie movie, right? Mm. I don't know, have you? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, wow, all these feminist critiques are in here and they keep talking about patriarchy. But like, ultimately, you know. I thought, it. I really fucking hated the like self-consciously woke dialogue. Like there's mm-hmm. this one moment where the teenage girl's like, white savior Barbie. And I was like, it's like they took Tumblr from 2015 and chuck it upside down all over the script. Like it was just so um, focus grouped and calculated. To have it, it, to get everybody. Turned me <laughs> off. Yeah, it really yeah. turned me off. Yeah. Um, and ultimately like just to be a boring, you know, lefty, <laughs> you know, eco-feminist, <laughs> um, you know, it isn't. It is an advertisement. It, mm. it, it's an. It's an extraordinarily historically good advertisement for a plastic doll. And it. And even if you loved the movie, maybe especially because if you loved the movie, you should know that that is that will lead to 
materially this selling of many, many, many more plastic dolls. Um, and so its success is, is, is a, is a, is a huge fa failure for the earth. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate, um, we were talking about them doing their market research for us <laughs> and the co-optation. Well, so yeah, I think you can get really down about the ways that these ideas are being co-opted by the right, or you can be like, wow, these really are popular ideas. Um, we should be making more of them. Uh, <laughs> and that the, the, you know, one of the things that's been, I think, nice for me about the last few weeks of touring, I mean, I've been in the US touring with the book, and just got here to the UK. The, there haven't been that many post, well, we're not post pandemic, but, but, um, since, since the beginning of the pandemic, there haven't been that many spaces for people to gather as mm. leftists collectively. And, you know, one of the things that's been helpful to name is the particular experience that a lot of us had of going from the highs of the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, to lockdown. Biden, you know, mm. Democratic Party rallying and just that the like the combination of that extreme political disappointment um and being isolated from each other so not being able to process it, re-strategize, think about what we want to do next. And instead, in that isolation and in our disappointment, a lot of what we did was just attack each other. Mm. And sort of, you know, I write in the book, we went from this, um, not, you know, this surfing, this wave of not me, us, and this kind of um, real joy of kind of a, a release from individualism and ego. I mean, that was what was so powerful about mm. being on the road with Bernie was you know, the, the, the slogan, not me, us, um, originally, I think a lot of people just thought it was Bernie saying, this is not about me, this is about us. But when you were out on the campaign, it took on this whole other life and meaning, which was much more about, um, you know, what, what Astra Taylor talks about with the debt collective, where, where with something like medical debt or student debt, mm. it's this private shame that people are carrying. And it's just all me in, in the sense of my fault and my burden. But when you meet lots of other people who are, who, who have that same burden, you find an us and that us has power. Like you, you organize into a debtor's union, then you're a problem for the creditors. And if you, and in the same way that when workers organize, they're a problem for their bosses. So to go from those highs, you know, of, you know, being in Las Vegas when Bernie won the, the strip, mm. which was like, I mean, I'm just, it was the happiest moment of my <laughs> political life just because it's Vegas, right? And it's shiny and gold and Trumpy. I mean, was it one of those <laughs> moments of politics where you feel like the boundaries of the self dissolve a bit and it's like... Well, it just absolutely, yes, because you've got the nurses and you've got t teachers and you have just so many different movements coming together and just reaching towards each other. And, and then... The coinciding of lockdown, I mean, we were, we, I so vividly remember being on mm. my couch. I was still living in the States at the time and, and watching um, the whole Democratic Party just coalesce around Biden. And, and then almost instantly, the Bernie movement just fractured and everybody started starting mm. their own podcasts and attacking each other. Um, and Hey, not too much about podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I mean, I got a cat to feed, all right. <laughs> but 
it was, you know, we were, we were sudden, we went from not me us to just being dropped in this ocean of me, 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 me. And that's all we knew how to do. And it was just heartbreaking. Well, I really, I really want to talk about this because I think it's something where I feel, again, really personally conflicted about mm-hmm. my own work yeah. because Navarra came out of the student movement. We all met through occupying uh, our university, which was UCL or, you know, the plate glass windows of Millbank, which was the Tory party HQ being oh, smashed. I remember that. That was cool. Um, that was my first year of university. <laughs> oh, wow. And I just remember it's me and my friend who were like in Millbank and she's, she looks like me. She's like my doppelganger, but uh, blonde and Irish. Like we're just like same height, same face, but like two different colorways. Um, like that was how we all met. And that was where the organization came from. And we've always felt like we're part of a movement, movement, but journalism is different from being a propagandist for the movement. And there are all kinds of tensions that come with it. And I think that mm. I often bulk at the constraints of what I feel are unfair expectations from parasocial relationships where I'm like, why is someone on Twitter yelling at me? Like they know me or like they own me. But the fact is, is that it's not unreasonable to have political expectations or editorial expectations of someone whose um, public career is the result of coming from this movement. So I was wondering, like, how do you navigate that? The sort of, you know, the the rigors and the demands of journalism that you've got to go where the facts are leading you. The fact you've got political aims, the fact that you want to think critically and independently, but you also want to be accountable to people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you square all of these circles? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's a lot going on there. Um, You know, I think left media should not be propaganda. Um, And we, you know, I, I like coming back to what we were talking about earlier about facts do matter, research does matter. It's part of the reason why I always hated the idea that you have are supposed to be a brand because what I know about being a brand is that you repeat yourself endlessly. Um, you know, if you're a good brand, you you've identified your core, your core, your core meaning, and you're just repeating and reinforcing. Um, and you have message discipline, which is pretty much the opposite of being a good journalist, a good investigator, which requires that you follow your research wherever it leads. You have to be able to be changed by what you're learning. Um, And so I think these projects are really antithetical. That doesn't mean that you don't have like an image in the world, but branding is a very particular thing. Branding is chasing your own tail ad infinitum. And that might be okay to sell running shoes, but it really is not a good model for being a public (laughs) intellectual or a journalist. Um, And I think we should push back on it. And I think also part of the cruelty that we've been talking about online is that there's a cost to performing a thing version of yourself, which Mm. is what it means to be a brand. Um, You're out there saying, this is thing me, you know, this is commodity version of me. People will believe you and they will think that they can throw very hard things at you um, and that you won't bleed um, because things don't bleed. And so I think there's just, I don't think we quite believe each other are real online. Oh yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and that's a problem. It's not the only reason why people are cruel. They're also racist, they're also misogynist. Um, but I think the the that there is also this factor that is driving it. Um, so we should try to dething ourselves if we can. I mean, just to play devil's advocate on the difference between a a journalist and a propagandist. Yeah. 
I was talking about this with my partner and one of the things that he was saying is, well, doesn't this keep you locked into very bourgeois norms? So if you say, well, this is what a journalist does and there are certain things that a journalist does which cannot be subordinated to your political aims, doesn't that make you a worse communist? Doesn't this make you a worse socialist? Doesn't yeah. this make you worse at bringing the world you want to see into existence? I think you I think it you need to be transparent about what it what values you're holding yourself to, what standards you're holding yourself to. Um, you know, I've never and I don't think you do subscribe to the idea that you're objective, that mm. you don't have politics. No, you wear your politics on your sleeve, you you know, you're in it because you want to change the world. Um, but you're you're still accountable for what you say and you're still going to hold yourself to standards of accuracy and truth and probing um and why why does that matter you also have to say why that matters and why it makes for stronger movements and why movements um always have you know strong movements always have powerful art powerful journalism you know like like it's an ecosystem and this is a piece of the ecosystem i think where we get into trouble is when the rest of the ecosystem is not healthy right so you know the way i, I you know I, I i'm interested in the history of 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 what navara came out of of the movements navara came out of i probably became aware of you around the corbin movement mm. and and you know saw you as a kind of an the media arm mm. of the corbin project maybe that's wrong but that's the way i saw you not that you were propagandist i know it's always a little yeah. tinge you know um but you also have to be able to do critique um because if movements can't do critique and that you know it's going to be through the media that's how we're going to hear each other um then you're just going to keep making the same mistakes over and over again um but you know i get what i'm describing around the the burning moment with it, I, you know all of those podcasts were relatively healthy when there was a political project that was healthy it was when the political project collapsed that it just seemed like the left was a bunch of podcasts <laughs> and i don't think that that is a left and i think that if people are um you know they're always going to be cruel online but i think these these parasocial relationships take on an overinflated and unhealthy role when they're subbing in for collective organizing that isn't in a healthy state you know um and and is that happening here well i mean i th i think that it's you know, the, since the demise of the Corbyn movement, and again, it was straight from Corbyn into lockdown, and that was a grim six months. Mm -hmm. It was it was really like a bereavement because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not only was this, you know, central force of your life gone, you're also being piled on with humiliation by everyone crowing and saying they were right about you all along. Right. And then you were separate from your comrades because you couldn't exactly. see each other and you could only communicate online. Like it was a very grim time. And I think that kind of just anecdotally, there are lots of people trying different things and there's kind of like embryonic yeah. experimentation going on. But certainly I think with, with Navarra, it is this ongoing discussion about what does it mean to be a socialist media outlet, which takes journalistic standards very seriously and takes socialism very seriously. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are conflicts there. There are tensions there. It's not But the more resolvable. robust the socialist project is yeah. outside of Navarra, I think the, the clearer your role is going to be. Um, it's just, it, it's when it isn't clear that there Pravda, is- you know? <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I kind of want to want to talk a little bit about um, 
you know, this thing of turning uh, oneself into a brand mm -hmm. because, you know, we all do it, mm -hmm. right? We all do it now that social media exists. Anyone who has Instagram or TikTok or Twitter is doing brand them to some extent. Um, what does it mean for the left to be contesting so much of its politics through these digital avatars? I mean, you know, one is that it stops people seeing each other as human beings, but what yeah. does it do to the politics? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's been great. I mean, in, in general. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement of the century. Um, and I do want to say that these, these political campaigns that we've both referenced, um, I think that one, we should, we should strive for more in terms of, um, I think we should expect from these political campaigns that when there are losses, they're, they, they, they're not just abruptly end and they're not be a, um, a process for trying to hold on to all of that organizing energy and to think strategically about what the next stage was. I mean, I was a Bernie surrogate and, um, you know, I think there was like one email that we all got that was just like, You guys got an hey. email? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I love the guy. I'm not blaming yeah. him, but, you know, social relations have never been his strength. But, you know, I think we, you know, if we are going to ask people to go all in for these campaigns and these moments when we sent some opening, um, you know, they're not all going to win. Most of them are going to fail. And there should be a strategy for holding that space mm. so that we don't all turn on each other afterwards. Um, but the the branding piece of it, and this is, you know, a, a big part of the reason why I wanted to come back to these themes. And it's something that I talk about with a lot of my comrades in the movement about the way the logic of personal branding and even collective branding, because it isn't just the individual brands it's also the the movement as brand that i think um is part of why we've had these like peaks peak peaks and big valleys where mm. it seems like everybody is talking about whatever the thing is and and we have you know historic numbers of people on the streets you know whether we're talking about climate strikes black lives matter me too you know it just seems like everybody is with the program mm. and then um and then, and then the crash, and then the internal divisions, and part of it, you know, Kiangi Mata Taylor, who I quote in the book a fair bit, and is a you know wonderful colleague and friend. Um, you know, she's written a fair bit about what, how why movements need more democracy, mm -hmm. so that it isn't just um, you know I, I think it's important that we have ways of talking about this that that deep personalize it. I think people are trying to build movements with really inadequate tools, and. So we're on these corporate platforms and people get, um, you know, lifted up to leadership positions um, because they are persuasive, because they're, you know, they're, 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 they're great at messaging, they're, whatever it is, mm -hmm. it, sometimes it's a little bit random, but they aren't elected and there mm -hmm. aren't mechanisms in place to hold them accountable. So, you know, in the book, I talk about how that, you know, that happened to me with No Logo, like there was a move that that the that book predicted that there was going to be a large anti-corporate uprising there wasn't yet there were just like you know you were talking about these sort of embryonic like little things there was like reclaim the streets and there was like an, an anti-sweatshop movement but there wasn't a big movement and then when that book was at the press these huge protests started 
popping off all over the place in Seattle and then Genoa and so on. And because I had written a book, I suddenly was, according to the media, the face of this movement. And it was bullshit because I had just written a book. Nobody elected me. Um, nobody could hold me accountable. <laughs> um, and suddenly, because this is what corporate media wants, they want like two or three people who are going to be the face of this thing. And, you know, I suddenly was like, no logo was a brand and it, mm. the whole thing got completely out of my control. I so Vogue asked you to do shopping with the enemy. <laughs> yes, I didn't do it, but they asked me, there were all kinds of like, there was a, there was um, uh, advertising, I got offers to do designer ad campaigns to do yeah, it was, and people did go create no logo products i think there's still a no logo craft beer people send me pictures of it um i don't know if it's any good but um you know i wanted to write about this from the inside and not have it be like a call out like oh mm. that person you know wasn't accountable i really just think we need to have democratic movements and in the absence of democratic movements People are still trying to build movements and it's not working. These tools are, are failing us. So we should try some new ones. And I think we are trying new ones. This is part of why we're seeing a wave of union organizing. I mean, isn't it also about shifting the kinds of political relationships we have with one another? Because if all of us are brands, brands are always competing and they're always competing for yeah. attention and they're competing for money. Yep. And if we turn ourselves into things and we're having relationships as things, you can't you can't build a movement based on solidarity with that. But the relationship oh, between totally. comrades, which is a word that you just yeah. used, is yeah. so different so and it's different. so rich and layered. And you want, as you were saying before, you want your ideas to spread. Whereas the whereas the logic of capitalism and branding is mm. I want the credit. This is mine. It's an ownership model, um, which is exactly the opposite of what you want. How you, is, if you want to change the world. This is my most cancelable yeah. opinion. Oh, dear. This yeah. is my most cancelable opinion. Are you going to get me cancelled? Okay. Uh, yeah, you're going to get cancelled by, by proxy. I'm so sorry. It's, it's time somebody brought down Naomi Klein and it's going to be this podcast. <laughs> my most cancelable opinion is that the anti-racist movement has become so concerned with intellectual property, mm. whether that's you know having beef with POC because, oh, that lumps us all in together or whether that's saying, okay, well, if we use the slogan, you can't use the slogan, and how different that was to the ethos of the Black Panther movement. Black Panther movement's like, you wanna call yourself the Yellow Panthers? Amazing. Like, you wanna call yourself the White Panthers? Amazing. Whereas we're so concerned with drawing these lines of separation in between, it's fundamentally liberal. It's liberal in the sense that liberalism perceives other people always as a threat and an incursion rather than what are the generative, creative relationships that occur between people. And, and obviously it comes from real injustices, mm. right? I mean, the, the, it comes from real examples of intellectual theft mm. of black women not being credited for intellectual contributions to movements for many, many decades. So I don't think it's just um, liberalism. I think it's also a needed corrective. It has been a needed corrective. And I think it is also a needed corrective to talk about how we want ideas to spread. You but know? I think even even this idea of of credit is is a tricky one because credit matters when you have a commodity and it's either about your place within an intent within an attention economy or a literal economy where, where people make money from doing these things. And of course the appropriation of this stuff is is wrong and it's bad, but to simply receive credit is not the same as what is the basis of a movement which can which can really build. And, and I'm not just talking about 
um, Black Lives Matter, I've also very much seen it with the relentless focus on uh, cultural appropriation from South Asian radicals in this country. And I go, yes, I get it. I, I do get it. But okay, everyone recognizes that henna comes from us. What next? Like, mm -hmm. why is recognition the thing we're striving for? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think it comes down to people just trying to make a really screwed up system mm -hmm. work for them, right? I mean, and I think that if there is a genuine revolutionary project that has any prospect of transforming this system to a more egalitarian one, there might be more openness to challenging this, these ideas around, you know, intellectual credit and so on. But within capitalism, someone's going to make money off of it. Somebody's mm. going to get the credit. Somebody is going to be on the cover of the magazine. And I think a lot of people feel like if they're not fighting for it to be them, it's going to be somebody else. And they're right. Mm. They, they're absolutely right. that it, So, um, I guess it all comes down to <laughs> building that revolutionary project because without it, I think we're, we, we're just going to be fighting for our scraps. And <laughs> I know this is a really big gear shift, but um, so, so Jewishness is really central to this book. It's mm -hmm. one of the threads which connects you and the other Naomi. Mm -hmm. It's central to the anti-Semitic conspiracism of, you know, the globalists are doing this, mm -hmm. that, and the other. But then you also talk about this doubleness of being both victim and perpetrator within the context of, of Israel. So I guess, can you talk me through how doubleness and the motif of the doppelganger mm -hmm. brought you into this sort of analysis of, of Jewishness, Zionism in Israel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, think I came across a paper by Carolyn Rooney, who's here in the UK, um, who talked about Israel as a country with doppelganger politics, by which she meant that it was a nation that had like a, a fundamental split where the um, Israeli Jews projected all uh, everything that they could not bear about themselves onto the Palestinian other. And then there's also like this sort of doppelganger at the heart of the Zionist project, which is that of the new Jew versus the old Jew. So this is something, you know, I quote Philip Roth, as I mentioned, in, in with all apologies to my 20-year-old self who hurled a Philip Roth book across my dorm room uh, <laughs> and vowed never ever to read another book by Philip Roth. Um, we will say things in haste. <laughs> But you know, every I was reading so much doppelganger literature, and I just, it, it, I, every, I just kept seeing references to Operation Shylock, his 1993 doppelganger masterpiece, and and I en ended up finding it to be really, really useful because you know, in part because of that ridiculous seriousness uh, um, uh, thread, but also the ways in which it really engages with this sort of the unshakable ethnic double, right? Which is the double that is projected onto um, uh, people who are not white and Christian around the world, which is the the, the, the double that that, it, that isn't the brand that you create, that you think you have in the world. It's the one that other people create and project onto you. So for Roth, it's Shylock, who is mm. the doppelganger of all Jews projected onto them. But then it, it becomes 
you know, a book about Zionism, limited in its in its critique, but still interesting. And he's very fascinated with the the figure of the new Jew as a doppelganger of the old Jew of the diasporic Jew. So, what's uh, the new Jew and the old Jew? For well, the new yeah. So, the, the, this is the project the, of, of Zionism is to create create a new Jew who is the you know muscle bound, gun toting, strong Jew. Nose Krav Maga. I mean, there's, you know, there's, 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 and I, you know, I think that the critique from somebody like Roth, who is like the, a literary, you know, it, it's, it's an anti, it's a kind of an, like an anti literary, um, you know, you with your books who couldn't save yourselves from, mm. from the Holocaust, we new Jews will protect you. Um, uh, and so it's this, there's, there's, there's that doppelganger in Israeli culture, old Jew, new Jew. Um, and there's a way that it blames the victims of the Holocaust for the Holocaust, some mostly unspoken, sometimes spoken. Um, and and then there, and this is what Rooney was writing about, the way is, is Israel's settler colonialism is a doppelganger, becomes a doppelganger of the ways Jews were treated in Europe. Not She's not talking about the Nazis and neither am I, but she is talking about the pogroms, the ghettoization, um, all the enclosures, the second-class citizenship, the apartheid system that mm. that is in Israel. Um, you know, this has been some of the more controversial parts of the book. It's a little bit of a twist for people who thought that the book was just going to be about, you know, um, feeling superior to Naomi Wolf and yeah, Steve Bannon. We're in and Gaza. suddenly we're in Gaza. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. um, so what happened when you were in Gaza? Um, oh, that's a story. Uh, yeah, so that's <laughs> what I mean. So I was in Gaza. Um, the Shock Doctrine had come out, um, and you know my previous books had been published in Hebrew, and I'd been approached by some uh, Israeli publishers to to publish the Shock Doctrine. It had a, the Shock, Shock Doctrine has a chapter on Israel and its um, role in what I call the disaster capitalism complex, and it looks at the export of all of these Israeli spy and surveillance and military tools. Um, so I wanted the book to come out in Hebrew, but I also had, had written in support of BDS and was mm. in, in contact with, with the BDS committee. And so um, we tried to figure out a way for Shock Doctrine to come out in Hebrew and Arabic at the same time with an activist publisher called Andalus that doesn't exist anymore, that up to that point had only published Arabic writing and translation. So um, you know, I launched the book on the West Bank. Um, you know, we did a, a lot of things to make to you know to, to as much as possible have a book come out in Hebrew mm. that did not support the Israeli state. It's complicated because most arts organizations get money and so on. But anyway, we we did our best. It was blessed by the BDS committee. Um, but before I went on the book tour, I wanted to go to Gaza to do some reporting. Um, and yeah, so there's a scene in a book in the book about coming back from Gaza through the Arab checkpoint. We had no trouble getting into Gaza because at that point they didn't know who I was mm. um, at the checkpoint going in. But coming back because I had done a press conference mm. in Gaza um, and talked about BDS and 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 um, and talked about. I mean, th th there had just been a, a huge assault on Gaza a few months earlier. When we came back through the checkpoint, they were waiting for us. And there was this really bizarre um, experience that we had where first they kept us waiting for um, th about three hours um, and just 
it, it's very strange because you there's no way to communicate. There's just the, there's just the wall. You're mm-hmm. on the other side of the wall, and there's surveillance cameras everywhere. They see us. We're the only ones there, and they won't open the gate to let us through. But if you are there past a curfew, then you can't get through, and you're in this sort of um, weird zone where there's nothing there. So finally, the door opens. We get through. We go through the, through the security check, and then they take my husband Avi um, and say, and, th- and there's a guy who introduces himself as Erez from Erez. So that's so you've checklist. got another doppelganger. Another doppelganger. They just follow me everywhere. <laughs> so Erez from Erez takes Avi upstairs, and he meets a general um, in his corner office, and he gets this huge speech where he they tell him that look out the window and there's a bunch of uh, like tanks doing a security exercise. And they say, do you know how close we were to sending in ground troops to Gaza? Which at that point, there had never been ground Mm. troops sent into Gaza since the blockade. And we were sent, we were going to send them in to rescue you. You have no idea how much danger you were in. We were in no danger. Mm. Um, I mean, we were hosted by Palestine, you know, like we were invited. Mm. Um, And, and, and they said, we see everything, we hear everything, and we were going to reinvade Gaza to rescue you and um, and get your woman under control. <laughs> Literally, they said that to, uh, to Avi, like about me, like we know mm. what she's been saying. And we don't care what you say because you're Jewish and we will rescue you. So they were saying, you have a doppelganger. Um, it, it like just as just as just as the rest of the world only sees you as Shylock, we only see you as Jews. We don't care about your politics or what mm. you say. We will rescue you from 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 the Palestinian enemy, even though you think that they're your friends. It was just the biggest mind fuck you could possibly imagine. And it's also and deeply manipulative. It, oh. It's like there'll be a ground invasion of Gaza. For like you, you, you know, yeah. because of you yeah. and your supposed solidarity with these people, yeah. we're going to invade them even more than we ordinarily do. Yeah. Like I never told that story. I mean, we were so we were so I mean, I wrote about the yeah. what we saw in Gaza and and reported on the aftermath of that that invasion. There have been so many since. But I never told the story of 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 that particular gaslighting mission um, that they did with with for eras from eras, um, and but to me it's so you know I, I shared the story in the book and thanks for asking nobody's asked about it. <laughs> um, well, it's because we've got we've got um, uh, I call it Zionism derangement syndrome in the UK where uh-huh. if you try and make any arguments critical yeah. of Zionism it gets pulled into Corbyn anti-Semitism the left and it's just. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something about the offer that they were saying, you know, uh, that is really the, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's not just Israel that's making that offer. I think the UK is making that offer with its militarized borders. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's take the guns, take the walls, take the prisons. We will, we will keep you safe from the hordes. And, um, you know, when I look at my doppelganger, you know, she seems to have thrown in with that ideology. She's got the guns and she's, you know, talking about the wars on the border. And, um, you know, I think as the climate crisis accelerates and the wars never end and poverty deepens, I mean, this is going to be the offer to all of us. And we have to, we have to decide if we want to take the offer. Um, yeah. I mean, I've got one, one last question, which is when so many different aspects of your identity are attached to fucked up things. And in your case, it was, you know, your Jewishness being invoked by this general to commit an appalling act of violence. But, you know, in my case, it might be 
um, my womanhood being invoked to stomp on trans people or being a Westerner and what that means for all of the, you know, extractive, <laughs> exploitative activities of, you know, Western corporations and the things which fuel my own consumption. Yeah. When we're <laughs> so tied to all of these things, is it possible to have a stable identity and is it even desirable to have one? I think we are in an, a moment that we that we simply cannot bear as individuals. It's just too hard. I mean, we are in this simultaneous unearthing, um, unveiling of 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 just you know unbearable networks of suffering that sustain the lives of the of the privileged outside of the shadowlands. Um, you know, and I, I think COVID acted as a unearthing and as 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 a revealer um, of all the people who hold up our world and allowed those of us who were able to be locked down to be locked down and bore all of the risk. And I think that generated a certain kind of derangement that is part of what I'm tracking in the book of a lot of privileged people claiming that they were victims of genocide and apartheid and Jim Crow and slavery and all the crimes of the last 500 years were projected onto a vaccine app or you know being made to wear masks. But I don't think any of us are really looking, are really able to look at the just the unbearability of our complicity in these 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 past, future, and present networks of of suffering, extinction, uh, dispossession. We can only bear it together. You know, we we can only bear it in the in in the in in the sturdiest. Um, widest possible coalitions. Like I quote Ariel Angel, the editor of Jewish Currents, at the end of the book, saying, "You know, we're going to need each other." Um, and 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 part of recognizing that we will need each other in the face of surging fascism and climate breakdown um, means that we are going to have to get over ourselves a little bit, you know, <laughs> whether it's our individual brands or our individual identity groups, which does not mean erasure, which does not mean annihilate the ego or dissolve into some mush of no difference that pretends that we are all coming into coalition with the same risks, mm. debts, and needs. No, but we will need each other. And we, you know, I do believe that every, um, you know, victory for the fascist right is also a story of um, division sectarianism, failure to make a st strategic alliances on the anti-fascist left. And we're on the, we are on the knife edge. We are just on the knife edge. We can't afford to destroy each other. Just, can't. just a little sprinkle of ego death, just a tiny, like just a little a salt bay well, sprinkle. Yeah. Find your doppelganger and just, uh, just get humble if you can. Yeah. Snog your <laughs> doppelganger if you can. Um, Naomi Klein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ash. This was really, really deep. Thanks. <laughs> well, have fun at the BBC. Oh, <laughs> this is a good way to start. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support. Or face the consequences.